Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 5th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. Today's mini editorial is written by William F. Burroughs of Sioux City, and William writes, Let's join together and rescue the Sioux City Journal editorial board from continuing to violate their own rule of no more than two minis every 30 days. So get out your pencils, people. Write a mini to give us a skinny. And again, this was written by William F. Burroughs of Sioux City. And now for the five-day forecast. Uh, today will be have periods of clouds and periods of sun with a high of 22 and a low of 6. Friday will not be as cold, but still with alternating clouds and sun, with a high of 30 and a low of 14. Saturday will also be cloudy, with a high of 24 and a low of 6. Sun Sunday will be sunny and not quite as cold, with a high of 32 and a low of 20. And then on Monday, there will be, uh, be sun and with a high of 40 and a low of 20. Our top story today is uh, about America's Best Young Farmers and Ranchers and Jackson, Nebraska producer named one of nation's top young farmers. When looking for improvements to his family's farming operation, Taylor Nelson seeks solutions that will lead to greater efficiency. In that search, he has embraced technology and how it can help get work done faster, better, and with fewer workers. Nelson said a f who is a fifth-generation farmer who operates Nelson Farms with his father, Doug. He says, it's about having a mindset that embraces change. Not every problem will be solved with technology, but a lot of them will. It's got to be a willingness to learn and to adapt to change. That willingness to seek improvement is one reason Nelson was recently named one of America's best young farmers and ranchers. An honor given annually to five farmers nationwide by DTN Progressive Farmer magazine. The award recognizes the next generation of ag producers who demonstrate business innovation, betterment of agriculture, and community improvement. You work hard and do the best you can. To be recognized nationwide is an honor, the 32-year-old Nelson said. It's not just a credit to me, but also a credit to the generations before. Nelson Farms grows corn and soybeans on 9,000 acres in Dakota, Dixon, and Thurston counties. Look inside the farm's machine shed in rural Jackson, and you will see John Deere tractors and farm equipment similar to what others use. Nelson is helping John Deere take the next step forward, serving as a spokesman for the manufacturer's autonomous tractor technology. John Deere engineers have spent hours at Nelson Farms testing one of the tractors, which, through GPS and other technology, operates remotely without a driver and performs fall tillage while Nelson is in the combine harvesting crops in other fields. Autonomous tractors ultimately will be programmed to perform other jobs, allowing farmers to do two or more tasks at once, saving them time and the need to find as many capable hired hands in a tight labor market. Nelson foresees a day when autonomous grain carts will aid harvest. We are always looking for what's a better way to do something, a more efficient way, he said. Nelson met the Progressive Farmer Editor a year ago at a John Deere symposium and was interviewed about his relationship with a tractor manufacturer. That interview led Nelson to apply for the Young Farmer Award, something he'd seen featured in the magazine over the years. 
He submitted his application, highlighting his farm's quest for efficiency and also his community involvement. He was notified in May or June that he'd been named one of the award recipients, and magazine staffers came to the farm for an interview, photos, and video. They returned for another round of interviews and photos at harvest time before announcing the recipients in November. Nelson and the other four honorees were recognized at an awards program in Nashville. Nelson wanted to farm since he was a boy. The cost of getting into agriculture after he graduated from college was steep, so he started Jackson Express, a convenience store and fuel center, in 2012. Before selling the business in 2020, he had learned how to build and manage a business and employees, helpful skills for full-time farming. He's relied upon his familiarity with technology to implement changes he hopes will make Nelson Farms more efficient and increase production. Along the way, he and other farmers his age helped reestablish the Northeast Nebraska Corn Growers Association, through which they launched the Growing Potential Ag Youth Festival, an annual event in which up to 300 fifth graders in a six-county area spend a day in hands-on interactive activities that teach them about agriculture and introduce them to career opportunities. I've taken the position of wanting to embrace the future of farming and the future of agriculture, Nelson said a young farmer hoping to plant the seeds of agriculture possibilities in the minds of the next generation. Abortion spending likely battles in new Nebraska session. The Nebraska legislature began its new session Wednesday with several new members, a new incoming governor, and nearly $1 billion in cash. But it faces some of the same perpetual issues over the next five months, including a likely fight over proposed abortion restrictions and what to do with that surplus money. The session opens with a record 18 women state senators among the legislature's 49 members. Nebraska has the country's only one-chamber legislature and is officially nonpartisan, although lawmakers tend to identify as either Republican, Democrat, or Independent. The body is currently made up of 32 senators registered as Republicans and 17 registered as Democrats. That split looms large over the issue of abortion. A Republican-led effort last year to pass a near-total abortion ban fell two votes short of garnering the 33 needed to overcome a filibuster. While it would seem that opponents of the ban retained enough seats to filibuster it again this session, some abortion rights advocates said there's no guarantee that the alliance of 17 lawmakers that filibustered the ban last year will hold this session. I expect an abortion ban bill, and we will fight like hell, but Nebraskans should emotionally and strategically prepare for it to pass, said Senator Megan Hunt of Omaha. Lawmakers will be working under a new executive administration beginning Thursday, when Republican Jim Pellin is sworn in as governor. Pellin replaces the departing Governor T Pete Ricketts, who was banned by term limits from seeking another term and is widely expected to be named by Pellin to replace Republican U.S. Senator Ben Sass, who is resigning from the U.S. Senate next week to become a, the president of the University of Florida. Little is expected to change in the transition of power from one man to the other, as Ricketts both endorsed and contributed heavily to Pillen's campaign. Among some of Pillen's priorities for the new session are cutting taxes and his push to change Nebraska's school funding formula to a per-student basis, a move opponents say could cost the state's largest urban district up to $270 million. 
Ways to curb the state's high property and income tax burdens are likely in the coming session. As Nebraska ended the fiscal year in mid-2022 with a nearly $1 billion cash reserve, and the latest forecast predicts a balance of $2.3 billion by the end of this fiscal year this summer. While some lawmakers are calling for the surplus to be returned to taxpayers through tax relief, others have cautioned against dipping into the reserve, noting the end of federal pandemic funds coupled with inflation and a possible looming recession will mean significant drop in tax revenue in the next two years. But the first day of the session Wednesday held none of those conflicts. As is tradition, the day was dedicated to setting committee chairs and swearing in new members, most of whom brought their families onto the Senate floor to observe the first day of the new session. Lawmakers approved the lone nomination of Senator John Arch of La Vista as the new Speaker of the Legislature. Arch, a former hospital administrator, replaces former state Senator Mike Hilgers of Lincoln, who was elected Nebraska Attorney General in November. Now to um, Woodbury County Board of Supervisors. Ung selected as chair of Woodbury County Board. Mar Matthew Ung takes the helm of the Woodbury County Board of Supervisors for the 2023 year. Ung, who was recently re-elected for his third term on the Board of Supervisors, served as chair in 2020 and in 2017. He was unanimously selected to the one-year term as chairman on a 4-0 to zero vote. Supervisor Rocky DeWitt was not present for the vote. I'll, of course, work to do a good job by this board and the taxpayers, Ung said. You all know how I work and the methodical nature that will be applied to our meetings and our deliberation and our efforts to maintain a flat or lower tax rate for the ninth year in a row. Supervisor Jeremy Taylor was re-elected as vice chair. Taylor was elected as vice chair shortly after returning from deployment with the Iowa Army National Guard in November 2021. Since 2008, no board chair has served more than one consecutive year, with members of the majority party agreeing to take turns holding the post. Ung was nominated for the chair by Taylor and was seconded by Keith Raddick, who served as the chair for 2022. No other supervisors were nominated to oppose Ung. The chair presides over the weekly meetings on Tuesdays, as well as makes all committee assignments, sets the tentative agenda, and oversees the daily operations of county administration, according to the bylaws. The position pays $44,100 dollars and 20 cents, about $7,000 more than the regular supervisor positions. Appointment to be made for vacant Woodbury County Board position. An appointment will be made to fill the Woodbury County District 5 Board of Supervisors position, recently vacated by Rocky DeWitt. A committee made up of Treasurer Tina Bertrand, County Attorney James Loomis, and Auditor Pat Gill met on Wednesday to decide how to fill the seat vacated by DeWitt, who left to serve as the Iowa Senate District 1 representative. Loomis said that based on the code, the vacancy started on January 1st. DeWitt submitted his resignation this week, allowing the committee to meet. By law, the committee can make an appointment within 40 days of the vacancy or choose to hold a special election. Voters can petition for a special election within 14 days of the publication of the vacancy or appointment. Gill made the motion to fill the vacancy by appointment, seconded by Loomis. The motion passed 3-0. The committee will meet at 1 p.m. on Tuesday to discuss the timeline and process of the appointment. One concern the committee members expressed is the current budget situation for the Board of Supervisors. 
A special election would not occur in time for the individual to participate in the hearings. Gill has said he believes it is important to have a full board during budget deliberations. Previously, eight people had contacted Gill expressing interest in the seat. The names read were Nathan Hallman of Correctionville, Angela Kale of Lawton, John Van Eldick of Lawton, Mark Nelson of Correctionville, Willard Brian McNaughton of Lawton, Barbara Slonicker of Sioux City, Jeanette Beekman of Pearson, and Charles Clark of Lawton. Kale and Clark were identified as having no party affiliation, while the rest were identified as Republicans. Nathan Howman, John Van Eldick, and Willard Brian McNaughton ran with DeWitt and three others for the seat in 2016. If voters do not want an appointment made or do not approve of the individual who is chosen, a petition for a special election can be made. The petition must be signed by at least 10% of the votes cast in the last general election, which be, would be at least 2,882, Gill said previously. All voters in Woodbury County can vote for all seats on the board, not just the district they live in. Gill said a special election would cost around $40,000. Gill had previously said he would suggest a special election. He said the Sioux City Community School District previously expressed interest in holding a special election in March for the use of the Advanced Vision for Education Fund. Gill said they withdrew that request when informed they would have to put their recently vacated seat, currently held by Bernie Scolero, on the ballot. Since the polling places are schools, election day is a no-school day for students. Students would still have classes during a special election. Gill said parents have contacted him in the past, stating they do not like having students in the building during elections. Woodbury County Board looks to pair $6.3 million from the 2024 budget. Woodbury County supervisors hope to close a $6.3 million gap to keep the property tax levy rate unchanged. Tuesday marked the first day of work on the fiscal year 2024 proposed budget. The gap to keep the same rate as fiscal year 2023 is, a large, is the largest in, the, in years, almost triple the gap of the previous years. Historically, $2 million has been the gap the supervisors needed to fill to keep the property tax levy the same. Last year, the board sought to close a $2.6 million gap. Chair Matthew Ong said the board has been able to avoid tax rate increases for eight years and he wants it to continue. This will be a no-nonsense budget process, I hope, from this board to get where we need to go, Ong said. The first meeting of the 2023 year was the first of many examining the county's $84.5 million budget. Dennis Butler, County Finance Director, said it would be a challenging budget due to high inflation, ongoing expenses, and the cost of running the new Woodbury County Law Enforcement Center, which will open in 2023. Their overall tax asking is proposed to increase by roughly $7.8 million with improvement requests. Without the improvement request, the tax asking is proposed to increase by $7.3 million. Last year, it was around $6.3 million, Butler said. If nothing has changed, the potential tax rate is $8.07 for urban and $10.69 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. The budget for the fiscal year that begins July 1 covers county revenues and expenses to operate law enforcement, infrastructure, voting, and other county functions. Under state law, the county must set the budget by March 31st. Tuesday, the board made a variety of slight budget decreases for a total of $47,798. Most of the reductions were due to a 40-hour 
accrual reduction. The fiscal year 2023 budget had tax rates of $7.15 for urban and $9.61 for rural per $1,000 of taxable valuation. This was a $0.02 decrease for both both from the uh, fiscal year 22 budget. Ong said he and other supervisors will be working to ensure the tax rate stays flat. This is a very tough year, but we have tools we're going to use, he said. The next budget review meeting will occur at 2 p.m. Thursday at the courthouse. And now a story on the Iowa State Legislature. GOP modifies plan to fill trust fund. Iowa voters approved a trust fund in 2010 to support statewide water quality and outdoor recreation, yet has, it has remained empty ever since. During the legislative session that begins on Monday, Will legislators consider filling it like they tried before without coming to an agreement? As of now, it's unclear, but our lawmaker says he will try again. The Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund, also known as Iowa's Water and Land Legacy, or IWIL, is dedicated to improving the state's water quality, protecting and conserving Iowa's farmland, expanding natural areas, and providing recreation. To trigger funding for the state natural resources, outdoors, and recreation trust fund, legislatures must increase the state sales tax. Last year, Senate Republicans broached a proposal that would eliminate all local option sales taxes and increase the state sales tax by one cent, reserving three-eighths of that sent for the trust funds, but the proposal never got off the ground. Republican Senator Dan Dawson of Council Bluffs, who chairs the Iowa Senate's Committee on Tax Policy and introduced the proposal last year, said he plans to try again this year, but with a slightly modified route through the state's tax policies. Dawson said he wants to streamline existing taxes. Instead of local jurisdiction having their own optional sales tax, which are approved by voters, the tax would be standardized for all local governments across Iowa. The state would collect the local sales tax and then remit it back to the local jurisdictions. Also, under Dawson's proposal, would be a one-cent increase to the base sales tax rate, meaning that the sales tax in Iowa would be 7%, even in communities that previously voted for a local option sales tax. The state would absorb costs for the Natural Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund out of its new sales tax base. I live in Council Bluffs. My sales tax here is 7%, Dawson said. We want to try to find a way to work within the 7% sales tax as opposed to just raising people's sales tax all across the board. He said he plans to bundle his I will plans into a larger discussion on property taxes, which will be the focus of his committee this session. We would streamline our sales tax policy and be able to fund our National Resource Fund. So it's kind of the best of both worlds, he said adding that most Iowans and local governments would see no net changes in their sales tax. If the funding stream for IWIL is activated, it would commit 23% to natural resources, 20% to soil conservation and water protection, 14% to watershed protection, 13% to the resource enhancement and protection program known as REAP, 13% for local conservation partnerships, 10% for outdoor recreation trails, and 7% for lake restoration. What went wrong last year? Last year, Dawson included his original proposal in an overall plan to reduce state income taxes, but it was not included in the finalized income tax bill passed into law. He took another crack at filling the trust fund by introducing it in another bill, which also proved fruitless. The reality is that increasing the sales tax three 
eighths of a penny statewide is just not something that's going to gain political support, which is why we wanted to marry good tax policy with funding some of our priorities last year inside the proposal, Dawson said. Leaders from both parties shared their doubts about how another attempt to fill the National Resources and Outdoor Recreation Trust Fund would be received this session, particularly amid high inflation. Whatever tax plan it is, one thing that we've been very firm about over the last six years is we're not here to increase taxes, said Republican Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitfer of Grimes. So any plan, whether it's what Dawson is working on or with property tax or with income tax, it has to be a substantial tax decrease or else it's not going to have a lot of legs. Democratic legislators who are in the minority in both chambers echoed the uncertainty surrounding any proposal's success. Funding the trust? Yeah, I don't have a lot of confidence that will happen this legislative session, said Democratic House Minority Leader Representative Jenner Confrist of Windsor Heights. If there's legislation about addressing water quality, obviously we're going to take a look at it. I want to make sure that we are truly addressing the issue. A lot of the things we do up here tend to be window dressing. Dawson said he hopes to receive more support for his updated plans this year. The irony wasn't lost on me that some people that were leading the charge on IWILL back in the first part of the 2000s now feel that any kind of sales tax is regressive, he said. Well, you can't have it multiple ways. I think this policy is going to work better than maybe some efforts in the past. Other water quality related bills will be introduced during the session, lawmakers said. State Democratic Sen leader Senator Zach Walls of Coralville said several smaller communities are reaching out to, for help paying off new water treatment systems needed to keep up with state and federal regulations. He said he hopes to see some federal infrastructure funds allocated for financial support. Democratic Representative Chuck Eisenhart of Dubuque will introduce a bill to create a new Child Left Inside initiative for Iowa, which would expand programs that connect kids to the outdoors and encourage investment in state parks and natural resources. He will also once again pursue the expansion of proper drinking water well testing. However, he said he didn't have much faith that progress would come out of the House Environmental Protection Committee this year, of which he used to be a ranking member. My unfortunate outlook is that my pa that past performance predicts future results, he said. I don't have high hopes that there's going to be a lot of proactive activity coming out of that committee. Republican Representative Tom Jennery of Lamar's, chair of the House Natural Resources Committee, said the Iowa legislature has continued to invest in water quality through funding for programs like the On-Stream Impoundment Restoration Fund and the Wa Iowa Water Quality Initiative. I believe this session you will see Iowa House Rep Republicans continue to responsibly invest in the quality of the state's water as well as land and air, Jennery said in an email. Other legislators say that Iowa still has a long way to go in terms of its investments in water quality. The majority passes something and then says they fix the problem, conference said. That is what we have to make sure we don't do anymore. Tom Barton and Aaron Murphy of the Gazette Des Moines Bureau contributed to this report. Grand opening set for sports complex, Sioux Center. Later this month, Sioux Center residents will be able to see what's $8 million and more than a year's worth of work was able to produce.
On Friday, January 20th, city officials and representatives from Dort University will host a grand opening of the newly built American State Bank Sports Complex, a 470-foot by 250-foot air-inflated dome and indoor turf facility meant to host year-round events. A joint project between the college and the city, the American State Bank Sports Complex turf is intended for soccer, youth football, softball, athletic practices, recreation activities, and other multi-purpose uses. Officials project it will see about 200,000 visits each year. The complex is named for the lead sponsor. The grand opening itself is set to start at 1 p.m. and will include speeches by Sioux Center Mayor David Crawling and Dort University President Eric Hoekstra. The complex was built on the former site of the Heritage Village at 1187th Street Northeast Sioux Center. Sioux Center paid to move the historic collection to another area. In January 2022, the Pella Roller Screen Foundation, the philanthropic arm of the Pella Corporation, announced a $50,000 grant to help with construction costs for the facilities. College to host Festival of Culture on January 28th, Orange City. Beginning at 5.30 p.m. on Saturday, January 28th, Northwest Iowa residents will have the chance to take in a number of different cultures with the return of the Festival of Culture to the Northwestern College campus. The aim of the event is to bridge the gap between cultures represented on campus and to give students and the community a taste and feel of what other individuals eat and experience in their culture, said Kelsey Joseph, the Associated Associate Director of Intercultural Development at Northwestern College. To that end, the event, which is $12 for adults and $7 for kids ages 4 through 11, will feature the food and beverages of countries around the world, a fashion show, and multiple student performances, including one by a group of visiting Japanese high school students. According to Northwestern, the college presently has students from Austria, Brazil, Belarus, Bahrain, Bahamas, Colombia, Chile, Canada, Germany, Ghana, Gambia, Honduras, Italy, Ireland, Japan, Malaysia, Nepal, Netherlands, Nigeria, Panama, the Philippines, Spain, and South Korea. New Dickinson County Attorney Appointed, Spirit Lake the interim tag can be removed from Steve Goodloe's job title. The Dickinson County Board of Supervisors on Tuesday appointed Goodloe as Dickinson County Attorney. Previously an assistant county attorney, Goodloe had been serving in an interim capacity since the resignation of Amy Zenner last month. There were no other applicants for the position and county residents had not requested a special election to fill the vacancy. Zenner resigned last month after she was arrested in November and charged with public intoxication. She told the board she was resigning because of a temporary medical disability and the voluntary suspension of her Iowa law license. Woman charged with leaving dead dogs, cat, and freezer. Sac City. A woman has been charged with animal neglect after a landlord discovered dead dogs and a cat in freezers while cleaning out a Sac City house the woman had been renting. Sac City Police were called on Sunday to a house in the 200 block of East Iron Street after the landlord told them the previous tenant, Billy Joe Biner Lagner, had left two dead cats in the house. Two emaciated de decomposing dogs also were found in a chest freezer in the garage. According to court documents, the house was filled with animal feces and urine and animals had been kept there without adequate food and water.
Police located Bayer Langner at a home in the 600 block of Park Avenue later Sunday, and she attempted to flee back inside the house before police arrested her. Officers returned to the rental home on Monday when the landlord reported finding a partially decomposed cat in the kitchen freezer. Bayer Langner, 47, who gave a Farnhamville Iowa address has been charged with five counts of animal neglect with serious injury or death, all aggravated misdemeanors, and a simple misdemeanor charge of interference with official acts. Lakeview Man Gets Probation for Burglary Spree, Sac City A Lakeview, Iowa man involved in a string of burglaries at a rural Sac County home has been placed on probation. District Judge Christopher Polkane on Tuesday suspended a 10-year prison sentence for John Bogue and placed him on three years probation. He was sentenced according to terms of a plea agreement. Bogue, 34, pleaded guilty to second-degree arson and three counts of third-degree burglary. He was one of four people charged in connection with burglaries and thefts in which copper piping and wiring and other property was stolen from at least three locations from December 1st, 2021 through March 4th, 2022. He and Nick Bogue also set a fire that destroyed a house and two outbuildings. John Bogue was ordered to pay a total of $8,454 in restitution jointly with Kennedy Ford and James Becker. A restitution amount for the arson charge has yet to be determined. Nick Bogue, 42 of Lakeville, Becker, 34 of Wall Lake, and Ford, 27, of Lake City, previously pleaded guilty to their roles in the burglaries and all were placed on probation. Storm Lake Man Charged with Robbing Liquor Store Storm Lake Police have arrested a man suspected of robbing a Storm Lake liquor store at gunpoint. Police were called to Al's Liquors, 215 West Milwaukee Avenue, at 9.22 p.m. Sunday after an employee reported being robbed. The worker told a man had entered the store, grabbed her by the hair, and held a gun to her head while ordering her to open the cash register. The man took approximately $300 cash and fled the store on foot. The employee was not injured. Police investigating the robbery executed search warrants at two Storm Lake homes on Tuesday and located clothing believed to have been worn by the suspect, cash, and a black BB gun believed to have been used in the robbery. Officers arrested A. Lou, 24, of Storm Lake and booked him into the Buena Vista County Jail on charges of first-degree robbery, assault while participating in a felony, going armed with intent, and assault while participating in a felony. He is currently being held on $37,000 bond. During the search of the other home, police found drug paraphernalia, marijuana, meth, and two guns. The robbery remains under investigation and more charges are possible, police said. Lou was charged in November with child endangerment in connection with a June 20th incident in which he is accused of choking and hitting a seven-year-old child. He has pleaded not guilty and is scheduled to stand trial March 14. Accidental kitchen fire causes significant damage to Lamar's home. An unattended pan on the stove caused significant damage to a home on Tuesday. At around 4 p.m. on Tuesday, the Lamar's Fire Rescue responded to a house fire at 1344th Avenue Southeast, according to a fire rescue news release. There was heavy smoke from the back of the house and flames from the main floor window. The homeowner, Richard Moritz, had arrived at the home to see the fire and was outside when firefighters arrived. A dog was the only one in the home but was located and appeared to be doing well, according to the release. About an hour and a half, the, the cause of the fire was determined to be accidental. 
A pan on the stove ignited, and the fire spread to the microwave and cupboards above the stove and into the kitchen ceiling, according to the release. The fire damaged the kitchen, and the rest of the main floor had smoke damage. Lamar's Police, Plymouth County Sheriff, Lamar's Water Department, Lamar's Street Department, and the Campbell's Electric uh, assisted with the fire. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Tuesday, uh, Thursday, January 5th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now turn to today's obituaries. Donald W. Rosenau, Sioux City, 78, died Saturday, December 31st. Services will be January 6th at 11 a.m. at Morningside Baptist Church. Visitation will be one hour prior to service time at the church. Arrangements with Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Miriam Ruth Bergen, Primgar, Iowa, and Spencer, Iowa, 103, died Sunday, January 1st. Services will be January 8th at 11 a.m. at the Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel, Sioux City. Burial will be at the Mount Carmel Cemetery, Sioux City. Roger P. Rankin, 83, of Kingsley, passed away Friday, December 30th at Kingsley Specialty Care. Visitation with family present will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday at the Road Funeral Home in Kingsley with a prayer service at 7 p.m. Services will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday at Salem Lutheran Church, Rural Correctionville, with Pastor Jody Steele Herbold officiating. Burial will be in the Kingsley Cemetery with lunch and fellowship time to follow at Road Funeral Home. Roger was born on September 9, 1939, the son of Earl and Leona Peterson Rankin. He grew up in the Kingsley area and attended country school through 8th grade. He then attended Kingsley High School and participated in football, basketball, track, baseball, Boy Scouts, Honor Society, and other activities. He graduated in 1957 and went on to attend Iowa State College. He then transferred to Morningside College and graduated cum laude in 1962. Roger taught math and physical education, started the football program, and coached football, basketball, and baseball at Remsen Union High School from 1962 to 1970. He then left teaching and began farming with his father, which led to a lifetime career of good farming practices while raising corn, soybeans, and cattle. On October 28, 1972, Roger was married to Joan Beeman in Denison. They lived on a farm near Correctionville and became the parents of two sons, Mark and Dean. They were very busy years as the boys grew and participated in many activities, always supported and encouraged and sometimes coached by their dad. He refereed basketball games and enjoyed a bowling league at one time. He also went back into coaching basketball at River Valley High School in the 1990s. Roger supported his church, Salem Lutheran, by serving as treasurer. He was on the church council and served on various committees throughout the years. He served on the board of directors of Farmers Co-op Elevator and Pearson, and several years later on the board of Western Iowa Co-op. He also was a director for the REC Electrical Co-op in Mobile for a number of years. Roger and Joan spent many hours over the years enjoying golf courses across the country, playing in leagues, couple tournaments, and just out enjoying the game. Some favorite courses were in the Black Hills. They enjoyed taking road trips to national parks and other historic areas, usually finding golf courses along the way. Trips to Alaska, New England, and many meeting destinations were enjoyed. He also became a fan and supporter of the local high school sports teams, Iowa State Cyclones and Morningside Mustangs, and attended as many games as possible. Roger did everything well, but he excelled at being a grandpa and loved the time he could spend with grandkids.
Roger battled a diagnosis of multiple myeloma for 12 and a half years with determination and courage. Dr. Ronald D. Kilzer, MD, 81, of San Diego, California, formerly of Horneck, Iowa, passed away on Wednesday, November 30th in San Diego after a brief illness. There will be a private celebration of life at a later date in San Diego. Ron was born January 12, 1941, the son of Oral and Vera Madsen Kiltzer. Grew up on the family farm at the foot of the Lus Hills. He had graduated from Holly Springs Horneck High School, class of 1959. Ron continued his education, graduating from the University of Iowa and the Royal J. and Lucille A. Culver College of Medicine, 1966. Ron completed his internship and residency at Northwestern University, specializing in anesthesiology. In 1978, Ron moved to San Diego to begin his own practice. Ron had a quick writ, compassionate heart, and always a joy to be around. William Wally Dazell, Sioux City, 84, died Saturday, December 31st. Services will be January 6th at 10.30 a.m. at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in Sioux City. Burial will be at Memorial Park Cemetery. Visitation will be January 5th from 5 to 8 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel at 3220 Stone Park Boulevard. Geraldine L. Olson, Lamars, Iowa, 80, died Monday, January 2nd. Celebration of life at a later date. Arrangements with the Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. Marilyn J. Schoenherr, 90, of Sioux City, passed away Wednesday, January 4th. Services will be at 10.30 a.m. on Saturday at Holy Cross Parish St. Michael Church. Visitation will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Friday with vigil service at 7 p.m. at Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at the Hillside Cemetery in Merrill. Online condolences may be directed to MeyerBrosChapels.com. Marilyn was born the daughter of Horace and Martha Dugan on January 18, 1932 in South Sioux City. She moved to Sioux City as a child and spent a lot of time with her cousins growing up. She attended school in Jackson, Nebraska, South Sioux City, and Sioux City. She married Gerald Babe Schoenher on January 20, 1950 in, in Sioux City. The couple farmed in Mapleton area until moving to a farm north of Leeds in 1955. They became members of St. Michael Catholic Church. She enjoyed the activities of the church and was a member of the Altar Society where she was a past president. The time she spent with her family brought her great joy. She enjoyed birthdays and holidays spent with them, especially Christmas. She liked traveling, shopping, and rummage sales. Wanda J. Mammon Lamars, 78, died Thursday, December 29th. Celebration of life at a later date. Arrangements with Maurer Johnson Funeral Home in Lamars. And that concludes the obituaries. Our next story headline, COVID-19 transmission rate drops to low in county. COVID-19 community transmission in Woodbury County has fallen from the medium level to low, while the number of people of positive tests being reported has increased.
Data updated by the Iowa Department of Public Health on Tuesday shows 84 positive COVID-19 tests in the county, which is up from 74 positive tests reported on December 27th. COVID-19 is circulating in the community along with RSV, which generally causes mild cold-like symptoms, influenza, and other respiratory viruses. The State Hygienic Laboratory at the University of Iowa reported 384 cases of RSV in Iowa from December 18th to 24, down from 655 cases and 840 cases the previous two weeks. Overall, statewide flu activity remains high, according to the Respiratory Virus Surveillance Report. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention's COVID data trackers rates Woodbury County's COVID-19 community transmission level as low. That level was calculated on December 29th using data from December 22nd to 20, December 28th. A new subvariant of Omicron now accounts for roughly 40% of confirmed COVID-19 cases in the United States. The Omicron offshoot XBB15 has overtaken BQ1 and BQ11. When community transmission is low, the CDC recommends that individuals stay up to date with COVID-19 vaccines and get tested if they have symptoms. Wearing a mask is advised on public transportation and when a person has symptoms. Test positive for the virus or has been exposed to someone with COVID-19. The CDC says individuals may choose to wear a mask at any time as an additional precaution to protect themselves and others. We'll now move to the sports section. Football class changed likely for Sioux City West as Iowa schools okay socioeconomic status plan. The system for placing Iowa high school football teams in districts faces a major shakeup. Under a plan recently approved by 80% of member schools, the Iowa High School Athletic Association would start assigning teams to districts based not just on enrollment, but also poverty levels. The measure, which still requires final approval from the State Board of Education, would follow a similar model in Minnesota that takes 40% of a district's number of students on free and reduced price lunches and subtracts it from the total number of students in grades 9 through 11 to determine new classifications. This would start next fall. Though IHSAA staff would need to crunch the numbers, it appears the change likely would drop Sioux City West to Class 4A, while Sioux City East and North likely would stay in 5A, home to the state's 36 largest schools. Officials from Sioux City and other large cities with high rates of poverty contend they've long been at a disadvantage competing in football against more affluent districts like those in suburban Des Moines. West High School Activities Director Steve Green said IGSAA's plan should put schools on a more level playing field. It's really going to help sort the sport of football in Iowa, he said. Of Sioux City's three public schools, West has the highest percentage of students receiving free and reduced price meals, according to the school's district 2023 data. North was the next highest, while East's percentage stood at 50%. West, with 993 students in grades 9 through 11, was already the second smallest 5A team for the 2021 and 2022 seasons. The largest 4A school, Council Bluffs, Thomas Jefferson, has 939 students. Dropping a class likely would put West in a district with area 4A schools that include Lamars, Fort Dodge, and Spencer. Two other metro teams, Bishop Heelan and Sergeant Bluff-Luton, completed in Class 3A the last two years. Even with the new classification system, North and East would most likely would stay in Class 5A since their enrollments 
are currently the 14th and 19th largest. Green said West would work to schedule East and North as non-conference opponents if they end up in different classes. We're always going to want to play the teams in our community, he said. It's important to keep those traditions going. West is under contract to play South Sioux City for the 2023 season, he added. Factoring free and reduced price numbers into state classification system possibly could mean a change for some other Northwest Iowa football programs. Storm Lake, as part of a sharing program with Storm Lake St. Mary's, had a total enrollment of 647 in grades 9 through 7, the 17th highest in the 36th school class 4A, but 68% of Storm Lake's public students qualified for free or reduced price lunches, according to Iowa Department of Education figures for the 2021 22 school year. With an enrollment of 169 in grades 9 through 11, West Monona was tied with three other high schools as the smallest Class 1A football program during the 2021-22 cycle. The Ottawa-based school might have dropped down to A, the smallest 11-player class, on enrollment alone this fall. That's even more likely since 46% of the high school students qualified for free or reduced-price lunches. Proponents of adopting a classification system that takes into account socioeconomic factors points to studies that show lower income parents are less likely than their higher income counterparts to get their children in youth sports due to obstacles that include the costs of extracurricular activities. Robust participation is particularly important in football. West High School finished last season with around 50 players, Green said. In comparison, some of the largest 5A football programs in Iowa have over 100 on their roster, mostly upperclassmen. Football is a numbers game, Green said. The key is we have to get more kids out in the program. Green said school officials need to continue to focus on building youth and middle school programs in order for West to help close the gap with our opponents on the high school level. Research also has shown more affluent schools win the majority of state football championships, not only in Iowa, but also across the country. The higher your free and reduced price lunches, the lower your chances are at winning state titles and even regular season games, East High School Activities Director B.J. Koch said last month. Two suburban Des Moines high schools advanced to last fall's Class 5A championship game with Southeast Polk defending its title 49-14 over West Des Moines Valley. West finished 3-7 last season with two of its losses coming against suburban Des Moines teams in blowouts. North went 5-4 with four, three of its losses against more affluent Central Iowa teams. AIM East finished 7-3 with all three losses to suburban Des Moines schools, including a 17-7 defeat to Ankeny in the first round of the playoffs. Iowa's high schools were asked to change the IHSAA's bylaws to adopt a classification system that incorporates socioeconomic factors. The measure needed 50% support from the total membership, or 60 percent support from those voting for approval. In voting that closed December 22nd, it cleared both thresholds with 211 yes votes and 52 no votes. Of the 365 IHSAA member schools, 263 took part in the vote. The IHSAA is developing an updated version of the plan that is scheduled to be placed on the State Board of Education's January 12th agenda. If approved, it would take effect beginning with the 23-24 cycle. The amendment would apply only to football. The IHSAA said it would continue to study whether the, whether the model also should be adopted for other sports. MLK birthday celebration set for January 16th. 
Morningside University President Dr. Albert Malsley will be the keynote speaker at Sioux City's annual Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. birthday celebration. The event, which is sponsored by Sioux City's NAACP and open to the public, will be held January 16th at First Congregational United Church of Christ at 4600 Hamilton Boulevard. Sioux City Community School District high school students will be represented in a Martin Luther King essay writing contest, while school board member Monique Scarlett will speak on this to this year's theme of This is the Power, Our Collective Voice. Longtime civil rights advocate Richard Hayes will give Kim's famous mountaintop speech, and the MLK Community Choir, under the direction of Sandra Pearson, will provide the music. Winnevegas Casino Resorts donates more than $20,500. Winnevegas Casino Resort presented four checks amounting to more than $20,500 to local Winnebago and Siouxland organizations. Active and charitable giving, the casino developed a program in which Winnebago guests could drop slot tickets in donation boxes placed at various locations in the casino. Guests could also donate change at a ticket redemption machines, as well as during auctions held at several concerts. Among the local organizations receiving donations were Winnebago Calip Inc., Winnebago Reformed Church, Crittenden Center, and Winnebago Native American Families Association. We are pleased to help out our local charities during this special time of the year when help is needed the most, Winnebago's General Manager Michael Michon said. We applaud our guests at Winnebago's Casino Resort for their generosity for the past few months and we look forward to supporting those in need. Winnevegas Casino Resort, located at 1500 330th Street, is owned and operated by the Winnebago Tribe of Nebraska and is currently in its 30th year of operation. Opened originally as a bingo parlor in April 1992, Winnevegas has grown over the years to become the largest gaming floor in the area. At present, its gaming floor is 54 1,353 square feet, has more than 767 slot machines, 10 casino table games, and features Siouxland's only bingo hall. Orange City Arts presents an evening of dance. The Orange City Arts Council presents an a- the annual an evening of dance on January 14th at the Unity Christian Night Center at, 26, uh, no, at 216 Michigan Avenue Southwest. The Orange City Arts Council presents a show which features local dancers from Orange City, Sheldon, Sioux Center, and surrounding communities as a way to celebrate the art of dance. Dance instructors will include Ashley Shebolt of Unity Christian High School Dance Team, Robin Van Ness of Robin School of Dance, Georgia Walker Illuminate Dance Project, Julia Van Stelt Elite Dance and Fitness, and Natalie Shelton MOCFV High School Dance Team. Dancers of various ages will demonstrate their skill and artistry through a mix of jazz, hip-hop, tap, and modern dance. Visit orangecityarts.org or call 712-707-4510 for ticket information. We'll now move to Dear Abby. Our first letter. Dear Abby, while doing some genealogy research during the pandemic, I came across my maternal grandfather's death certificate. I knew he had died at a fairly young age during the Depression, but I was shocked to learn that he had committed suicide by carbon monoxide poisoning in his car in the garage of their home. His little restaurant was not doing well and money was scarce. I imagine he was desperate and depressed. 
My mother had anxiety issues, which may have been the result of her father's suicide or a genetic issue. Should I share this information with my adult children? Could it be helpful to them in any way? My mother did not share this with me. I have a close relationship with my children, and this secret is troubling me. Signed, Withholding Information. Abby's response. Your mother did not share the details of her father's death because, back then, suicide was considered a source of shame. The stress of keeping her family's suicide a secret, her father's suicide a secret, may have contributed to her anxiety. Fortunately, attitudes are more enlightened today and the subject of suicide can be discussed. Because this secret is troubling you, you should definitely bring it out in the open. It might be helpful to your children to know that depression may run in the family. Dear Abby, my husband's brother and his wife visit every six weeks and are guests in our home. My husband is very close to his brother, and I know the time they spend together is a bliss blessing to both of them. My problem is his wife. She drives me crazy. She wants to get into my business and is very outspoken. My husband's parents and his other brother have passed. Other members of the family have room for them to stay, but I was the only one who opened my home to them. I don't want to cause problems in the family, but she criticizes what we watch on TV and tells us what she prefers to watch. She wants to go out to eat, and I have told them repeatedly that I don't want to do that. I still take precautions against COVID, but I can't get that through to her. They have a lot more money than we do, so spending $100 at a restaurant is nothing to them. I'm not comfortable spending money like that. I cook at home, which he rarely does. I dread the weekends when they come. How can I tell her that in my house she should keep her opinions to herself? Sign, Fed Up in the South. Abby's response. In the interest of preserving family harmony, do not confront your sister-in-law. You and your husband should speak to her and her bro his brother and lay down some ground rules about their visits, particularly the excessive spending on restaurants. Divide the TV entertainment time equally between you. If that still doesn't suit her, offer to loan her a book or su suggest she bring reading material the next time she visits. Unless you are quarantined, make a point of visiting another equally health-conscious friend so you aren't subjected to this woman's company all the time. You might also sweetly suggest that it doesn't seem fair she spends all her time with you during these visits, which deprives the other relatives. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 5th. I'm Dagna, your reader. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you for listening.
From the Bureau of Economic Geology, this is Earth Date. Since the dawn of humankind, people have used caves to explore, hold religious ceremonies, create art, or avoid the dangers of weather and predators. Partly because of that, they continue to fascinate scientists today. To create a cave, Mother Nature needs three things. Water, rock that can be dissolved by it, and lots of time. Rainwater, as it falls through the atmosphere, picks up carbon from CO2 to become a weak carbonic acid. By the time it hits Earth, it's about as acidic as coffee. As it percolates through the soil, it picks up more carbon from decaying plants, becoming a slightly stronger acid. If the rock below the soil is limestone, gypsum, or dolomite, the water can dissolve along tiny cracks. Over many thousands of years, the cracks become channels, then tunnels, and could eventually become caverns. Water might also mix with hydrogen sulfide gas seeping up from natural oil and gas deposits to form sulfuric acid, which can also dissolve the rock. Protected from daily and seasonal changes on the surface, caves can maintain a stable temperature and humidity. In these delicate environments, the remains of ancient animals and humans, which could have quickly decayed on the surface, have been preserved for millennia. Deeper, more isolated caves have preserved bacteria and microbes undisturbed for millions of years. These qualities make caves important sites for researchers, natural time capsules. There's probably an amazing cave near you, so take a trip and get to know your Earth. I'm Scott Tinker, dissolving mysteries on Earth Date. Earth Date is produced by the Bureau of Economic Geology at the University of Texas at Austin, with support from Schlumberger, helping oil and gas companies increase production and efficiency while lowering environmental impact. You can hear more EarthDate stories at earthdate.org.